Well, hello and welcome to the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint live series. It's hard to believe it's been another two weeks since uh, we, we were last here. Uh, time is just moving quickly, uh, getting back to school and, and lots of things happening. Uh, so, of course, uh, I am the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. I started the Alliance about two and a half years ago to raise awareness about the issue of restraint and seclusion in schools. Uh, that said, we care about a lot more than just restraint and seclusion. It's about uh, restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, uh, corporal punishment, all the things that are often being done to kids rather than working with kids and supporting kids uh, in the name often of, of behavior. And our mission is really to educate the public and bring people together in changing minds, laws, policies, and practices so that restraint and seclusion are uh, really eliminated and reduced in schools throughout the country and beyond. Uh, our vision is to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. That said, we care about these issues regardless of where they happen. We care about restraint and seclusion uh, if they're happening in the troubled teen industry or if they're happening in the mental health setting, anywhere they might be happening, because there are far better things that we can be doing to support people. And that's really what our programs here are about. They're sharing with you uh, better ways of working with and supporting uh, individuals and uh, hopefully making the world a better place. So today I am very excited to have Gail Quigley joining us all the way from Australia. And while it is 3.30 in the afternoon here, local time, uh, I'm in the Eastern time zone. It is actually 5.30 in the morning on Friday uh, in Australia. So I really appreciate uh, Gail um, making the effort to, to talk to us at this time. Um, for me, 5.30 is the middle of the night. Um, fortunately, she was willing to get on with us and do this special presentation. Gail's going to be talking about restorative practices, and we will be taking questions following the presentation today. Uh, so I'll be uh, sticking around with Gail and, and may have some questions, but we'll, we'll try to wait for most of the questions till after the presentation. Of course, you can put those in the chat window at any time, and we'll try to go back to those. I do want to let you know also, as always, we record these events. They are made available on Facebook, YouTube, and as an audio podcast. So if you have to miss part of it uh, or you want to share it, we always encourage you to share these with other parents or other educators or other professionals uh, really can be helpful. So with that, let me go ahead and add Gail here to our stream and give you a brief introduction. Uh, as I mentioned, Gail is joining us all the way from Australia, where it's bright and early in the morning. Uh, Gail has been a passionate educator for 35 years, working really in a multitude of roles, uh, from teacher to behavior support consultant, uh, head of special needs, before moving into a principal role about 10 years ago. Uh, Gail's principal role has been in low socioeconomic areas in the Northern Territories and the remote end of Australia, working with um, indigenous communities. Gail is fiercely passionate, and, and I can absolutely uh, say that with, with a lot of certainty, fiercely passionate about shaping schools to ensure that every student is understood, safe, and able to succeed no matter what their needs might be. Uh, Gail's also currently working on a doctorate program at Queensland University of uh, Technologies uh, and researching something that is really, really interesting to me, and, and Gail and I've had several conversations about. It's the uh, between the complex, the really the intersection of complex trauma and developmental disabilities in a school setting. And I think there's a lot to be learned there. And in learning those things, uh, I think there's a lot of improvements that can be made really in schools across the world. So Gail, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for getting up so early and joining us today. Thank you, Guy. Thank you so much. Um, firstly, just thank you so much for inviting me. I feel very privileged to be able to speak on this forum here. Um, you know, we've had some amazing conversations and I, I really admire the work that you and the team 
um, are doing doing currently in the moment. And thank you to everybody for joining me. Um, it's quite a privilege to have people interested in things that I've got to say. I think they're interesting, but it's even better to know that there are people out there, particularly around the world now, that are interested in what I've got to say. So I Absolutely. guess without further ado, I'll just, um, as Guy said, I, I've prepared a presentation. So I'll be running through the presentation and really happy to accept any questions at the end. Great. And if you want to get your presentation ready to play, uh, I just want to mention, too, that since I originally put your bio in here, um, you know, the bio that you gave me, something important happened after that. And you have joined the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint as a volunteer. So you're you're actually now volunteering with the organization, uh, which is fantastic. And we're, we're very excited to have you. And, you know, we, we've got a number of volunteers really from across the world. And, you know, uh, with you over there in Australia, we can really say that we've got uh, people all around the world that, that are focused on this issue. So I'm going to go ahead and bring your presentation up if you want to go ahead and put it in the play mode. And there we go. I'm going to go ahead and add it to our stream now. And I will let you take it away. I'm going to put myself on mute and try to be quiet. Those of you in the chat, remember, if you have a question, feel free to put it in the chat. We'll probably take most of the questions at the end, but feel free to put those in at any time if you have any questions. So with that, Gail, I'm going to mute myself. I will be here and it may pop up occasionally if, if there's a, a reason to do so or just have a comment that I, I can't hold on any longer. So uh, with that, I'll let you take it away. Hey, thank you. Thank you, Guy. And again, um, a huge thank you to everybody for joining me. I say this morning, um, but it's um, wherever you are, whatever time zone you are in the world, welcome. Um, so before commencing, I'd, I'd just like to mention that the material presented here today is based on my own personal experiences um, whilst working in a multiple of multitude of roles across many jurisdictions. And, you know, I, I, I've really thought about what the title of this presentation is. And as you can see, I've sort of changed it a little bit. But, you know, it's Restorative Justice 101, but beyond. So we're going a little bit further beyond just the 101. And it's really about restorative justice being the golden ticket to building a safe, supportive learning community. Um, and I'm, I'm doing a, a trauma-informed lens, um, you know, putting in a little bit of the research that I've, I've found at the moment while doing my doctorate program. So I'll be moving on. So the aim today is um, to gain an understanding of just the fundamentals. Most importantly, while I'm going through this presentation, I'd, I'd really like you to maybe start evaluating your own mindset res regarding restorative justice because it definitely is a continuum and it's my hope to maybe just agitate your mindset somewhat or maybe cement it or concrete it or, or just plant a seed um, as we go through today. And my hope is that by the end of it, you would actually be able to go away and conduct a basic restorative chat using common language. So I'm going to start off with some scenarios. Now, um, as you know, I'm, I've been a principal for 10 odd years um, and schools are very complex places. I'm sure um, they're not just complex here in Australia, they're actually very complex around the world. So those of you that are working in schools, as I go through these scenarios, I'm sure that you can actually go, oh, yes, that's absolutely happened. And I'm sure you understand as a principal, many, many things come across your table and, and come into your office. Um, and for the mums and dads at home, um, 
or support workers. I'm sure that you can relate to these, maybe these sorts of things even happen in your own home. So the first scenario, and while, um, so I'm, I'm just introducing these scenarios just for a bit of a taster for you to think, how have you seen this dealt with in like a traditional school or um, in a traditional classroom? So we've got this situation where um, a teacher has brought in these two boys fighting. Um, they've been punching and pushing each other and the teacher is very upset and distressed, understandably, and demanding that they be suspended. So I look at these two boys, they're still very, very angry um, and, you know, one's already a bruising is starting on his face. So there's obviously been some fisticuffs going along there and they're still threatening each other about, we're going to finish this after school, you wait till I get you. And they're, they're just very, very emotional. So I invite the teacher to leave and I'll say take it from there. So I just want you to think, what would you do in that situation? What have you seen happening in maybe your school or in traditional schools? And we're going to come back to these scenarios at the end once I've gone through my restorative justice presentation. The second scenario, again, is something that happens in lots of schools. Um, and this is a scenario about some racial tension. So, and, um, you know, I, I do need to say these are all sort of based on real life events, but fictional people. Um, so there's been some racial tension brewing at this school. So it's a low socioeconomic school with, with very multicultural. And there's been two new large um, Iraqian families that have arrived. And these children prior to arriving in our school have been based in refugee camps. Um, yeah, trauma, trauma affected children. Now, over the last few months, there's been some bullying and a gang-type mentality from the senior students in the school towards the families. And then on this particular day, enough was enough and things exploded. I had to, I was called down onto the Oval and upon arriving there, it was just an all-in brawl, um, about 10 students, not a nice situation. Again, heightened anger, very distressed staff, um, kids were distressed, a lot of kids were around encouraging it, of course. Um, so after breaking it up, I could see that this was far from over because, again, there were things, you know, of retribution after school. And the third scenario is uh, um, around a, um, an Indigenous student. Very um, sad story for this Indigenous student, which I'll go through later on, but he had been diagnosed with ADHD and had suffered from complex trauma. Um, he struggled at school academically and socially and behaviourally and had a very, very short fuse. Um, obviously, he'd been restrained and suspended at schools countless times. Um, and that was really the pattern. When I arrived there, he'd hardly been at school. Um, he couldn't read. And most of the time, he just spent up on the roof um, swearing at everybody throwing rocks. He had a very good arm, I have to say. And um, the staff, understandably, were very, very fearful him, fearful of him and were pushing big time uh, for him to be excluded. Added to that, his behaviour was a real issue at home too for his mum. So I'd just like to keep those three scenarios in the back of your mind. So we've got, you know, two boys fighting, 
We've got a bigger, much bigger issue um, around racial tension that's spreading through the school. And then we've got this one individual child who is causing all sorts of trouble for the staff, the school and the students. So my restorative justice journey, gosh, it started probably 20 years ago. And I guess throughout my teaching career, when I started at the bright young age of 20, I've always been incredibly passionate about social justice and just kids having a voice. 20 years ago, the landscape was, I think, rather different to what it was now, and it was a very punitive, disciplined type of environment in schools. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to do it differently. And even, even in my te early teaching career, I always seemed to get all those so-called naughty kids in my class. And I loved it. I really did. So, you know, when I think back to when this all started, there were two life, I would call them life-changing events that, that I attended to. The very first one was I attended some Glasser training, so William Glasser on control theory um, and I'll, I'll briefly mention the basic fundamentals of that and the second life-changing event was doing a restorative practice professional development with the most amazing woman based here in Australia her name is Margaret Thorsburn so she's got some great books out there look her up google her join her Facebook she is simply amazing so firstly, choice theory, and look, you know, I could talk about choice theory for the next hour, but that's not really the purpose of this, but choice theory changed my life. Choice theory has, has as its roots, believes that you cannot make anybody do something that they don't want to do. It's all about internal control versus external control. The person actually has to choose what they are going to do. Um, William Glasser even likens it to if somebody had a gun held at your head, you would say, oh, well, I have to. Well, actually, no, you don't have to because you still have a choice. You can choose to be shot in the head or you can choose to do something different. So it is all about your internal choices. William Glasser also really believes what I've coined the three R's and it's all about relationships, relationships, relationships. That is the key to human development and actually a safe and harmonious community or world, I think. And then he talks about the five basic needs. Now, some of you may have already heard of these uh, five basic needs, but when I look at these five basic needs of survival, love and belonging, power, freedom and fun, um, I think they restorative justice fits into every one of those. And Glasser would say that we have... We don't all have the same basic needs, that um, we may have a need for power and love and belonging, and it's about filling your cups. Everybody has different a different sort of level of need. And, you know, it's most important to mention that a need of power doesn't mean power over, but actually power within, power within ourselves. So most of the kids that I work with, our little challenging ones, gosh, they have that need for love and belonging. And, you know, that it's these five basic needs that drive human behaviour, um, as William Glasser said. So, you know, rather than looking at 
these naughty children, I often reflect what is the need that they're trying to have met. And as I said, I could do a whole presentation on William Glass's choice theory, but um, we need to move on. You know, Gail, Gail I think you, um, you, you've just taught me something that, that I, I'm going to have to start giving credit to uh, uh, William Glasser because, you know, I've often said the three R's of really, uh, <laughs> education should be relationship, relationship, relationship. Uh, obviously not the first person to say that, but I mean, it's so critical. I, I, I love that idea um, and, and couldn't agree more that uh, the relationship part being so critical. So uh, I'm, I, I'm actually interested to hear more. Uh, on choice theory at some point. So uh, I'm making myself a note. There may be another presentation in your uh, uh, future. <laughs> yes, the comment, I'm truly in love with William Glass's work. And, you know, it seems to have died a little bit, but it was, you know, quite big time. But it's what actually dictates my whole life and how I think about things. So when I say it was life changing, I genuinely, genuinely mean that. So, um, okay. And you know, I love this slide. So this is about the relationships and, you know, this does tie into restorative justice or restorative practice as well. And he talks about the seven deadly habits and the seven connecting habits. And, you know, you look at the ones on the far left and, you know, the criticising, the blaming, the threatening, the punishing, rewarding, these all sit within a very punitive um, traditional school type of setting, um, even in even in your own personal life, um, sometimes, um, as opposed to the seven connecting habits of the caring and the listening, the supporting. And as I go through my presentation, you will see that restorative justice ticks every one of those boxes. You know, the, the listening and the caring. Um, and so, you know, I try and aspire to the seven connecting habits. I have to say, you know, it's very easy sometimes. We are humans to slip over to the other side, um, but the results are never pretty. And I really love this, uh, this saying. So this is um, from a book. I'd highly recommend it to anybody that's interested in getting into um, just the basics of restorative practice. And it's, it's called Better Than Carrots or Sticks. And I love this, this statement. It's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. So, you know, what it's saying is that we have to start right at the very beginning teaching our children to be able to repair things, to, to be contributing citizens rather than just punish them and have them not growing as individuals within themselves. And it's much easier to do it now than do it later on in our penal system. So moving on to restorative justice and the fundamentals, and I'm just going to really flick through these things. Um, but most importantly, and I think this is the most important slide of the whole thing, that it's a values-based philosophy and practice. And it's about putting our values into action. So really, it it's really does start with the question is, what do you value? Do you value kindness? Do you value respect? Do you value inclusion? Do you value support? It's those those values. You've, you've got to dig inside yourself and ask yourself that question because if they're the things that you value, then somehow we need to find a different way in schools to do it differently because punishment and suspension, exclusion does not value those types of things and most importantly and I think this is the biggest takeaway that I'd like you to take away today it is actually a way of being it's not a program 
oh, we're not a restorative justice school, um, you know, people go, oh, yeah, I've done that. Um, it's not a prescribed program. It is a way of being. It permeates through the whole school, through your life, in every conversation, in every action you do. It is a way of being. So you can't say, oh, I've done restorative justice. It's, it doesn't work like that. So these are the basic fundamentals again. So there's a real emphasis on the importance of the positive relationships. So you can see this tie back to William Glasser again. It's about the relationships and it's a belief that these positive relationships are central to building a building community. And it actually involves the processes that repair relationships when the harm is done. So, you know, we believe that relationships are the key Restorative practice is repairing those relationships when harm has occurred. And, you know, when broadly and consistently implemented, it's going to strengthen a positive school culture and enhance pro-social relationships within the school community. And who doesn't want that, really? Because it's good for everyone. This is not just about the kids. This is about the staff. This is everybody that's part of this school community you know, restorative practice definitely has the potential to improve staff relationships with each other, with the, with the children, with the parents, um, staff relationships amongst and beyond and outward as well, past those gates. So restorative practice is all about that um, it's, a, it's a belief that crime and inappropriate behaviour causes harm and that the injustice should focus on the repairing of that harm caused. So it's not about punishing the offender, but rather what harm has happened and how do we go about repairing that harm. And it has a fundamental belief that the people affected by the harm should have the opportunity to be part of the resolution. Doesn't that actually make sense? I mean, I think I heard it was another presentation by Joe Brummer, actually, at one stage, and he he likened it and it really ticked a box with me that, you know, if you're having problems in your marriage, so to speak, let's just pretend, it's not like you, you then send your husband off to his boss at work to try and fix the problems that you guys are having within your relationship. It's something that you need to be part of, you both need to be part of, and each person needs to have the opportunity to be part of the resolution. And so often in schools, isn't it, that we just send the kids home, we just suspend them. I mean, something happens and you go, go home. And then they come back and suddenly everything's magically meant to be fixed. And there's not even actually a conversation uh, around the victim and the perpetrator as to even what happened. So restorative justice is very big about person most affected needs to be part of the resolution and it really has a fundamental belief that those that are struggling we need to help them and not isolate them we need to be part of their support network so just really quickly I won't read that whole thing because everybody can read but really what's fundamental about it it's a shift a total shift away of thinking about that laws are being broken and whoever broke the law, we just need to punish them for breaking the law. There's a shift towards that there's been harm caused, there's a disagreement, there's conflict. The question asked is, how do we repair this harm? And we need to address the conflict, meet the needs, 
so that the relationships and the community can be repaired. It's just a different orientation. It really is a total mind shift. And these are the goals. Um, look, most importantly, I think, I love this first one, it's, it really seeks to redefine justice um, and how, how, it's, how it's done in the world. And, you know, it, it has the power to dismantle racism and, in, and inequity. These things are so very close to my heart, not just in a school setting. And, you know, you do see restorative justice, you know, in other parts of, of, of um, jurisdictions, I guess. Here in Australia, restorative justice is used a lot now in the penal system and it is often a, an alternative to um, imprisonment, which is very, very exciting. Um, most of that sort of I've already sort of mentioned. Now, this is a very interesting slide, and this is the social discipline window, and I'll quickly talk you through it. So we've got on the bottom axis support, and then we've got on the left axis control. Restorative practices sit in that blue window there. So if we can just sort of run through the other one. So, you know, we've got um, no support and neglectful. So there's no support, but there's also no control. Um, that's not helpful. Moving along the bottom, we've got the permissive or the full. We've got all support and no control. Ah, do what you want. You know, um, kids, you know, you decide what's going to happen today in this classroom. Um, hey, you know, the sky's the limit. You know, whatever happens, happens. We'll work through it. Then we move up to the top left and there we've got all control and no support. The very traditional. It's my way or the highway. I make the rules in this place. Um, you do as I say, and if if you don't do what I say, then off you go. You're not welcome to be here and you're going to be punished. Restorative justice sits in that blue window where you've got lots of support but also control. And, and this really is a myth that I'd like to bust because, you know, many people think restorative justice is all about no control and no rules. It is actually quite the opposite. There is still limit setting. There is still discipline, but it's done in a very supportive, nurturing way. It's a really great um, slide, that one. I really like it. Well, lots of words. Um, but really, the key points here I'd like to mention is that it's really about a paradigm shift um, because there are still rules and there are still guidelines. It's just that it's how we deal with the breaking of the rules that's different in restorative trust in, ju in restorative, restorative justice as compared to a traditional punitive approach to discipline. Um, you know, if the, if you bring the child into the conversation and talk about how the actions have impacted and harmed the community as a result of not following these behavioural expectations and all parties come together to decide what the actions are going to be, then that's when you have solved it in a, with a restorative um, approach to discipline. So I really need to stress again, it's not about there are no consequences and there are no rules. There actually are. It's very much about that. But it's just how you deal with them and how you um, work with the child to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Gail, I was just going to jump in real quick. Um, it's such an interesting point, how, how you work with the child. And so much of this, I mean, you know, I look at um, 
you know, so many of the approaches out there that I would say are, are far better approaches, re- relationship driven approaches, you know, restorative approaches, trauma informed approaches. And, and you know, the, the common denominator there is rather than doing things to kids, you're working with them. And it seems like that's such an important part of not only, um, you know, as you mentioned, kind of what what does discipline yield if, you know, you, you send a kid home and, um, you know, they're not part of the process? Um, you know, it's interesting that there's such a uh, desire for consequences when, in fact, the consequences aren't structured in a way to offer any support to the child. So I love the graphic, but I just love that you made that point about, you know, how important it is for the child to be involved in the process. Yeah, thanks, Guy. And, you know, look how many times do we see a child suspended um, and they just come back to the same situation. It just makes no sense to me um, that they're just sent away and come back and things are exactly the same. The problem still exists and they they haven't grown as a person. I've just seen the most amazing things happen through these restorative practices of the insight that the actual child gets around how to deal with conflict and don't we want that um you know it's about teaching Mm -hmm. those skills we teach all sorts of other skills but we tend to not teach those skills of how do you resolve conflict how do you be an an active participant in community and restorative justice has the power to do that certainly not sending a child home to just sit in isolation at home and often it's where they're learning how to deal with conflict in not an appropriate Mm -hmm. way in often sometimes in that home setting in some of the in some of the settings I've worked. That's not a criticism to homes or families because, you know, I know that families and homes do the absolute best they can do with at the time with what they're being given. So Mahatma Gandhi, I just love this. An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. It really sits in nicely. So look now this is the part of the presentation where I'm just going to flip through a restorative justice conversation and the questions that we ask. And before I do, it's really important to understand the role of the facilitator, so the person that's actually part of this. So say in the example, the first scenario I gave you, I was the facilitator with these two boys. But most important to realise, the problem is the problem, not the person. It's the problem. It's about depersonalizing it. And I love this. I'm always curious. If you get curious about things rather than having a judgmental view, but a genuine curiosity, what's happened here? Rather than a judging stance, you'll definitely get far more information um, than what you need. So there's always a facilitator. It's never done alone. There's always a facilitator there. And here are the questions. And look, I apologise if people have seen these 100 times over, um, but these are our questions. So what happened? Now, I think about what happened and it it reminds me now, I'm sure that many of you have heard or read um, Oprah and uh, Bruce Perry's book, and it is titled What Happened? And that just changes the whole stance of the conversation, what happened, rather than what did you do? Um, it makes you curious. So what happened? Get curious. What were you thinking at the time? So it's getting them to look inside themselves. What was going on? What what were you thinking? Help me understand. Um, What was going through your head at that time for you to punch that kid in the eye? And what have you thought about since? So it's a reflection. 
Who's been affected by what you've done and in what way? And what do you think um, you need to do to make things right? And this is the future part. What would you do differently next time? It's about the future learning. I'm just going to very, oh, and there's also questions that you ask the victim, slightly different questions. Again, the same question, what happened? And what impact has this had on you? So this is the victim's opportunity to talk about how it's made them feel. It gives a different appreciation for everybody in that room or, or present to go, oh, my goodness, I did not realise that that's what happened. And this one, what's been the hardest part for you or the hardest thing and what do you think needs to happen? How different is this to, you know, you look at that scenario and two boys are sent home None of this happens. There's been no appreciation. The victim doesn't even have a chance to say what they need for themselves to make things right. Now, I'm just going to really quickly unpack these questions, not all of them, but just to give you some alternatives because sometimes you hit, of a, you hit, of a, hit a bit of a brick wall. So, again, thinking of those two boys, what happened? And often they say, I don't know, or ask him. Um, you know, and and I must say there's a process in all of this too. I don't have the time today to go through the whole process, but there is an exact process. So, you know, you ask all the questions of one person first and then you ask all the questions of the other person next. So you don't skip and change between all the questions. Um, and, look, it's really good too, if, if at all possible, to have a support person in there for each of the individuals if that is at all possible. Um, but I'll go through, there's a continuum. So I'll go through that later on about, you know, how big you want to make this or how small you want to make it or just a casual conversation. You know, so these are some of the alternatives, which I'm sure you can read through. Um, always good to have them in your back pocket so it doesn't hit a brick wall. Um, you know, I like the, you know, I often say, if I was a fly on the wall, what would I have, what would I have seen happen? It sort of takes it away from the personal um, and the the angry. Um, so there's some alternatives to what happened. And for students that are affected by trauma, because as Guy mentioned, I am doing my doctorate on the most fascinating um, of studies, the intersection between complex trauma and disability. So I've tried to build in a bit of a trauma flavour. Um, and in doing so, I'd really like to acknowledge my supervisors, Dr. Judith Howard and Dr. Lyra Estrange from the from QUT, um, who have really um, grown my thinking around trauma. Um, obviously, there's not enough time to go through it today. But so trauma kids, it's when did this happen? Depersonalize it or where? Ask those sort of things first rather than getting them to look inside themselves, which can often trigger those same fight, flight or freeze type of emotions. And then you can move on to what happened. So what were you thinking? So that was the second question. What was going through your mind? So you can see that there. What's going through your mind? What did you hope was going to happen? Tell me, what made you decide to do that? Or looking back on this, what do you think now? So there's lots and lots of, and there's so many resources out there about these types of questions. These are just sort of my other thoughts that I've sort of had along the way. 
And so the third most powerful question is who has been affected? Now, this is a this is probably the crux of it, but probably the most difficult because nine times out of 10, and I'm speaking children because they're the ones I've had the most experience with, say, I don't know, um, him. Um, well, no, actually, not just him. I need you to think bigger than that. And this is so powerful because this is where children learn to realise their behaviour doesn't just affect one person it actually has a ripple effect it affects so many other people so you often have to prompt in this area and you know it might be something like well what would your mum and dad think or how would it affect your mum and dad if if I was to tell them that's often when the tears start I have to say so mums and dads out there you know you're very important to your children they really do care what you think so there's often the tears you know and what about me you know I'm sitting here. Do you think this is where I'd like to be? So you've really, really got to unpack that. Keep digging, digging, digging. Don't let it stop until you've got all the answers that you want. And this is a process too, you know. It takes a while. Children aren't going to be great at it first up, but they will get better. And adults, I have to say as well. Um, it, it's a learning process. But this, the trauma, the students that are affected by trauma, again, depersonalise it. You know, who's been hurt? Make it very simple, simple questions. How did they feel? Where were they hurt? Very simple things. Um, and then how can we fix this? And, look, I really have to stress this. Kids are amazing at this. Honestly, they can think of better ways to deal with it than what you ever could. What do you need to make things right? And I have to say, sometimes kids think up the harshest of things to do. Um, like I could pick up rubbish for two weeks. Um, they they think of the most cruelest, nastiest things that you could ever imagine, but they're sometimes so practical. They can actually see it. And it's about asking the victim too, well, how do you think this can be sorted? And it's done in a restorative way. So it's it's practical. It's not punitive. It's not, you know, okay, you're just going to go and pick up rubbish for 10 weeks. You know, it's the kids going, oh, well. And, you know, when I go through the scenarios, you'll see how some of these, these things have, what the kids come up with. Please, please give kids the credit to actually fix their own problems. Because again, this is the learning. This is where it all happens. This is them growing and maturing as well. Um, yeah. So yes, and definitely the future learning. What are you going to do differently next time? It's learning from what they've done. Um, you know, I often do this, you know, if there has been a suspension and, you know, look, let's face it, it's not all Pollyanna. There are times where suspensions are the best thing to happen. I don't like to call them suspensions. I just say, you know, it's just time out. And often at schools do need to have time out, time out from each other, time to let things settle, time out to come up with another plan of how we're going to support this child. But, you know, after the suspensions or even better, if you can do this while they're suspended, go and do a home visit, get them on the phone you know, talk about how are they going to do things differently next time. You know, sometimes I've actually brought the child in from the suspension to do the restorative justice before they come back to school. Not now you're back at school, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, it does take preparation. You need to prepare for that. But then they come back with a clean slate. Everybody's happy. It's all been dealt with. 
day one, right, let's get back to it. Um, I find that that really works well. But, yeah, the future learning, what have you learned? What have you learned? And, and, you know, what will you do next? What are your triggers? What triggered you? How can we make sure that this doesn't happen again? Okay, so as I mentioned, so what I went through was just a sort of a basic chat. So, you know, restorative justice conversations can happen on a continuum. So, you know, it is, as I said, a way of being. And, you know, my hope and dream is to have a school where it's just the way we do business. So, you know, it's in all our policies. It's just the way we even interact with each other. It's our common language. It doesn't have to be when there's conflict. It it actually it can be a preventative to conflict. It is all about getting curious, asking those questions, what happened? And so we've got on the far left, you know, we've got the minor incidents, which is just sometimes just a chat in the hallway, just a relational conversation moving across to an, an informal restorative chat. So that's what I would have done with those two boys, you know, a cuppa and a conversation. It's two people, you're in there, there's a facilitator and you're having a chat. Moving into classroom meetings, oh, that's another whole hour presentation. Oh, my goodness, classroom meetings. So, you know, this is classroom circles, whatever you'd like to call it. You know, it's a daily practice where, you know, you, children sit in a circle and we have these restorative conversations, you know. The children are part of the, the thing. You know, if there's a child that's, you know, not coping in the classroom, you know, often we'll, you know, send them off somewhere and they, we'll have a chat about how can, what's happening, what's happening for this person, you know, how have you been impacted but how are they impacted and it's the classroom gaining an understanding and coming up. Sometimes the person's in there too but it's the classroom because they're the community and they, they their healing circles, they decide the consequences. I remember doing one for a classroom teacher and she's having all sorts of problems. The kids were, you know, she was having difficulty managing behaviour, et cetera. And I actually came in and facilitated a classroom meeting with the teacher being in the room and all the kids. Oh, my goodness, it was just so powerful because she had an opportunity to say in a non-blaming, non-judging situation how she was feeling about things. But also, and, you know, had hands Hats off to this teacher because, you know, sometimes it means letting go of your own power because the children also had an opportunity to talk about how they were feeling. And it was, you know, as I said, credit to her. And they were things, saying things like, but we think you're unfair, you know, because the girls always get chosen for all the special jobs and we don't. So it was so powerful. But rather than just coming in and laying down the law and going, right, you lot, and putting in all sorts of, like, punishment plans and ticks on the board and, you know, three strikes and you're out type of stuff, this was a classroom meeting and I never had another problem. You know, you always had your one-on-one -on -one problems, but it was so enlightening for the teacher. It was a reflection on her own practice but also enlightenment for the kids too, to understand that their behaviours are having a massive impact on this, their peers and on the teacher as well. And then we move right over to a very formal restorative chat where it's also all organised, all the participants are briefed prior, um, you know, there's, there's lots of people, you know, involved. And then the formal conference, and I have done a couple of these where, you know, you may have up to 10 people and it may take two or three hours. That's, you know, where it's a very big thing. Like 
um, you know, stealing or something has happened. The parents are involved. You've got your guidance officer from the school involved. You might have the classroom teacher. You sometimes even call um, the police services in or whatever else. So the, you can see there's a whole gamut of the way this can this can be used. It, it is a whole way of being. I know I keep saying that, but it is. This is important. It has to be at the right time. Everybody has to be ready for this. Are you ready? So it is often about preparing beforehand, depending. You know, if it's just a one-on-one, -on -one, no. Um, you know, but it's also about the staff knowing about restorative justice and what it is. So it takes a lot of whole school implementation, which, again, I probably don't have the time to go through today, but I do have some challenges that I've faced um, later on in my presentation about the whole school. But everyone has to sort of do it this way, I guess. But, you know, if you're heading into a restorative chat, there has to be a self-check. Self but asking when is a good time? Is it now? Or is it later? Hey, isn't that something a bit different? Go away, cool down, come back later. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be a consequence. It just means that it needs to be at the right time. Is the person calm enough? Oh, my goodness. How often? This is going to be happening. What happened? The child's off, it starts that whole cycle again of trauma. They're off there like a frog in a sock and suddenly you're having to suspend because you haven't chosen the right moment. So are all parties ready to talk about what's happened? And there's a slide, next slide, that will that'll really help picking the right time. And, you know, is it going to make it worse by bringing these students together? Because sometimes it can. It, it, sometimes it's better to talk to them separately first of all, and go through those questions. And then at a later time, bring them together. You know, you've just got to ask yourself, this, is this going to make things better or worse right now? Even with your partner at home, is what I'm about to say going to make things better or worse? Is now the time or do I need to have a five-minute timeout so that we can do this at a different time? Where are you going to do this? Certainly not um, in the hallway. You know, it's about the privacy. I've, I've actually done some of these conferences off-site if I've had to, particularly if it's um, around staff. Um, you just, it's just not a good look to do it where everyone can hear. And have has the purpose been explained before asking these questions? And, you know, Mark Thorsburn has a great book on it, but it's really important to emphasise with them there's no blame here. This is not about trying to find out who was wrong or who was right. It's just trying to find out what has happened and how we can fix this. And then there's the after, you know, and often it's very, very important to do a debrief. So, you know, if there are staff involved in this, sometimes it's really important to go and do a debrief and do a follow-up because a word of warning, these can be incredibly emotional I remember one restorative chat I did, it was two young girls and they stole from the school library and I decided to do a conference and bring the parents in as well. And I can I can tell you at the end of it, we were all crying. I was crying as a facilitator. The parents were crying. The kids were crying. It, they can become very, very emotional. So it is really important as the facilitator that you are able to debrief with someone but also offer that debriefing support for anyone that's involved in it. 
And this is what I was talking about. So this is sort of um, more about the, the, you know, children that have suffered complex trauma, but you can see the purple line is the adrenaline and the yellow line is the cortisol. And, you know, think back to any incident that you deal with. So you've got the peak and the child starting to come down. And I've been guilty of this too, actually. I, I didn't, I actually didn't know this. And often you go, okay, they're calm now. And you're down in that first dip. I'm going to start talking about what's happened. Um, even a restorative justice, what's happened or, you know, and, um, but you still got the cortisol running through um, the child's body. And so it has the potential to actually escalate, get the adrenaline flowing and escalate that situation again. So it's very wise to choose the right time when the cortisol is starting to leave their body. So as I said, it can often be, look, sometimes it can even be the next day. Sometimes it can be, look, you know, you just need to, you don't return them obviously to the situation, but sometimes it is. Look, you just need to go home for the day and let's come back tomorrow and talk about this. You know, if it's a really, really tricky situation. So now I'm just going to dig a little deeper and I'm just going to really touch on these because it is, you know, some quite... Um, theoretical stuff but it's just a bit of a taster and to build a bit of an awareness of some just some um, deeper theories I guess behind restorative justice so a theoretical perspective so these are the two theories that I'm actually using in my research at the moment and look sorry I'm not going to sort of you know blow your brains out with it because it took me a long time to get my head around it but there's two theories that I think really pertain to restorative practices so there's the Bronfenbrenner ecological systems theory what a mouthful and social constructionism and you know in the light of restorative practice I think you know you can definitely tie these together so I'm just going to quickly touch on those I love this I love this for all sorts of reasons I think this is just another one of my glasser moments in the fact that Bronfenbrenner believes that you know a child so you look in the very center there there's the individual I talk about a child because it's a child and it's about a child developing and Bronfenbrenner's theory believes that a child develops within an ecosystem that they don't just develop. So it's about that whole nature-nurture debate. You know, yes, they're born with the genes they are, but it's it's the ecological um, system that sits around the outside of that, like a, a set of Russian dolls, he likens it. Um, and so you've got these things growing out further and further. And so you've got your microsystem right in the middle there. That's your immediate setting. So that's in the classroom. Um, that's the teacher and the student. There's the, the students within themselves. Um, and that's, you know, you think about restorative justice obviously sits in there because, you know, it is those types of close relationships. But then on the outside that you've got the, the, um, the meso system, so sitting around the outside, that's that orange one. Um, sorry, the micro system, that purple one, is the relationships with everybody within each other. So, hey, how's that? you know, the teacher with the parent, the teacher with the teachers, um, the teacher with the student, um, there's that. And then around the orange, there's the meso system. This is fascinating, I think. Um, so, and, you know, that's the relationships within that that sort, whole sort of like micro system. And then we've got the blue, which is the exosystem. And this is a system that 
the children aren't even part of, but it does have an effect on their development. So it might be the, the parent's workplace or um, something that's happening actually with the teacher at home that they've brought into the classroom. And then we've got the macro systems, and that's all the policies um, that are developed within the school, but, you know, also within government and even cultures. Um, all these play a part on that individual. And, you know, my dream would be that at every level restorative justice is embedded in there, that the, the policies and the practices are built on restorative practices as opposed to traditional punishment, etc. So, look, that's just a taster. I'm sorry. I, I just had to throw it in because it's go and have a look at Bronfenbrenner. It's, it's fantastic. And then we've got social constructionism. And, and quite simply, social constructionism is all about um, believing that there is no reality, that our reality sit within our perception um, and we construct and co-construct our realities and it's through the conversations that these happen. So thinking back to restorative practices, you know, what's happened? How has this impacted you? The things that come out is enlightenment for kids to go, oh, I didn't know that. Um, and so, you know, I think... It's also having those conversations around these key terms of punishment. What is punishment? What is discipline? What is inclusion and exclusions? It's, it's having those because that's how policies are constructed through that social constructionism. So, um, you know, I just, I, I just wanted to talk about those two things. And look, just really, really quickly, some stuff around complex trauma um, you know, mind-blowing. Nadine Burke-Harris, if you haven't heard her TED Talk, you must hear it. Um, but in her research, she has found that children who have suffered complex trauma are 32.6 times more likely to have learning and behaviour problems in school. And there's a point to all of this, and I'll, I'll, in my next slide you'll see. But this complex trauma can affect their child's ability to learn, form relationships and manage feelings and behaviour. And in turn, that has a profound effect on the whole school community. And then most importantly, and, you know, um, there's, we've, there's many experts on this, but, you know, can lead to oversensitivity in threat detection and difficulties with emotional regulation, which all points to the fact that the traditional approaches for these kids will not and most importantly cannot work because their brains are wired differently. And that whole threat detection, the minute you start going in with an authoritarian type of manner, off they go, like frogs in socks. So, um, you know, it's just mind-blowing that many of these children that we have sitting in our classrooms and complex trauma is not just for those low socioeconomic area, let me tell you. It is prevalent in every school, no matter what school. This is everybody's type of business. And this is my parody. So this is what I've always grappled with, that why is it that out the children that really need the most support and understanding are the ones that are often get treated with that whole one-size-fits-all punitive type of approach and, you know, this is Mona Delahook, which I know that guy um, has very uh, close relationships with her. And she, um, I believe she's been um, on this too. But this, this is where it's at. When we understand children's severely challenging behaviours as, as automatic adaptions to survival, it allows us to see that connection. Not punishment 
is the portal to healing. See, healing, healing, restorative practices. It's about that healing. It's getting inside. It's understanding. It's showing them another way. It's all of us learning. And again, this all gets back to Glasser as well. It's those five basic needs. It's the relationships and, and it's the internal control. And I have to credit Guy with this. <laughs> I love this. This is where it's at. So, you know, just following it around um, to the right, you know, we've got, um, you know, the trauma changes the brain, causes the hypervigilant, causes the behaviour. And then in the traditional approach, what happens? We move on to the yellow. Compliance demands. It escalates the behaviour. The fight, flight or freeze. The punishment leads to more trauma. Not just for the student, I have to say, that teachers can get very traumatised as well in these situations. And if we can break that cycle right there where I've put the restorative justice, there's the behaviour, let's do it differently. Let's stop, let's stop that cycle of trauma. And this is just from SAMHSA. So this is an American um, organisation. And look, again, this is about a trauma approach in schools. And restorative justice sits where the green and the orange is. It's about how you respond, how you respond to trauma within your school and the policies, procedures and practices, but also resisting the re-traumatisation of children by doing that punitive type of approach. Okay, so let's go back to these scenarios. Okay, so here we've got the boys having a big punch on and they're in my office. Okay, now let's just look at one way that I could have dealt with that and I could have said, right, that's it. You know the rules in this school, boys. What's the rules? No fighting. Right, you've broken the rules. What happens when you break the rules? We get into trouble. Yep, big trouble. I'm going to ring your parents and you're going home. Done. Come back in three days' time. What has that solved? What could happen when they come back? I can guarantee you what will happen is they'll be fighting again as soon as they get back. Nothing has been fixed. So what I did with these boys is I did a very simple restorative practice and we went through what happened. Um, and they both, you know, um, chatted about what happened. To cut a very long story short, this is what actually had happened while they were talking to each other. What had happened is the day before, um, they'd been, or it'd been going on, there'd been some name calling at the school. So the boys went home and told their parents. Now, the dads being dads, being very brave, one of the dads, I'm going to, going to go and sort this kid out, son. Watch how it's done. So after school, the boy gets picked up from his dad and the boy is sitting in the car with his dad waiting to move on. And one of this other boy's dad comes up to the window and starts to threaten the boy sitting in the seat. You need to leave my son alone and stop saying these things. What does the dad do? Hey, you don't speak to my son like that. If you keep speaking like that, I'm going to come and knock your block off and watch out. You know, you know, that sort of man versus man type of thing. Very restorative. And so... I didn't know any of this. So what happened is that the boys then got very, very angry at each other because of their dads. And so they started to talk about all of this. And the most powerful moment was when the boy was saying, but I felt really, really scared when your dad came over to the car. And the other boy said, so did I. 
I felt really scared about my dad doing that and I felt so bad. And suddenly there was just this moment where these boys went, oh, my goodness, we both feel the same way. And they, this whole conversation started and it was so funny at the end because one of their things that should happen is that they wanted their dads to come in and do a restorative chat with me so that they could actually learn a better way of doing things. And so, look, that was a great story. Those boys became really, really good friends. There was no suspension. There was actually, um, oh, that's right, the, the consequence they came up with is that they had to do nice things to each other for two days. So they were almost like each other's slaves. <laughs> and as I said, kids come up with the best things. So that was the first scenario, a very happy ending and a learning by all. And then, of course, I went to the staff member and explained what had happened. What would have been more powerful, I think, now on reflection is to have the staff meeting, staff member sitting in with that restorative conference. I didn't do that, but, you know, this is a learning for me too. That would have been incredibly powerful. And, you know, maybe, you know, the next step could be to have those dads in. I didn't actually go that far, but um, it's, it's time-consuming to do that. Scenario two, this is the racial tension. Oh, my goodness, this was this is a crying moment. Um, I did a much bigger restorative um, conference there. So I got in um, a respected type of elder from the Islamic community um, to come in. Um, there was the guidance officer in this as well. There was um, the classroom, a couple of classroom teachers as a support. And we did a more formal conference with this one. It was quite bigger. It went for a couple of hours. But, oh, my goodness, the understandings. These, these kids were able, had an opportunity to talk about what their life was in the refugee camp and how it's kind of made them feel and how they felt when they were being bullied and their life, just their life in general. Um, and that was just such an understanding for these kids that have never experienced anything like that. And there was such an, an empathy. And at the end of it, the, the leader of the Islamic, he was sort of like the boss of the family, he stood up and he went over to the other boss of the gang and he stood up and he held out his hand and he said, I would like this to be peace amongst us. Um, thank you so much for being part of it. It was so powerful. Kids can do these things. I don't know why adults can't sometimes in the world we live in, but the kids can do it. And then after that, the, the, the gang actually became the protectors of the Islamic kids because they had this absolute empathy for these poor children of what they'd gone through. Oh, and the final scenario, this was probably a very sad story. This was in my time up in the remote. And this was this little boy he had the most terrible life. You know, his brother had um, had a restraining order against the mother because the brother, the older brother, had come and put a pool cue through the mother's hand. Um, look, these boys had been belted up continuously. by the, They lived in fear of their older brother. So did the mother. The mother was um, a substance user. This little boy had been, I, I think he'd hardly ever been at school because he was always suspended. Um, he had the most complex trauma. Um, he couldn't read, he couldn't write, he couldn't do anything. And I said he spent most of the life on the roof. 
And, you know, I made it my mission, you know, through my whole glass of thinking and also restorative practice to build a relationship with this young man and many others in the school, I must say. And it got to the point where I was his safe haven. Um, that wasn't a very popular decision with many of the staff, but um, he was. my office was his safe haven. And, you know, through working and, you know, the, all the research on complex trauma shows that if a child has just one significant person or one significant relationship in their life, it can change the trajectory of their life and of their brain biology. And this is what happened with this young man. So I was there for probably two or three years and he just suddenly grew within himself and he learned to read he learned to read at year four. He learned to read, and from there he was strutting around the school, going, "I'm going to go and get myself an education," because up there they got sent to boarding school when they were in year six, and he's going, "I'm going to be better than my brother." And when his mum used to pick him up from school, he used to kick the front seats of the cars and go off. Now he'd sit in the front seat and read the newspaper while he was waiting for her. Oh my goodness, it was just so powerful. It can make a difference. It really can happen. But, you know, it was a long journey. He did have his moments. And, you know, look, the staff were very fearful of him, understandably. And there was always that push, get him out, get him out, get him out. But, you know, when I left, he was still there, <laughs> um, you know, through a lot of work with everybody, I guess, not just myself. So just wrapping up, oh, my goodness, I talk too much, but wrapping up, you know, it's not all Pollyanna. It is very, it is a difficult thing um, because it really is that hearts and minds work. You know, our schools, well, I know here, you know, many schools here are still very traditional because it's the way we were brought up. You know, it's it's our, it's our beliefs, you know, it's about punishment. You know, it has to be maybe we brought up that way, the penal system, you know. Um, you know, a lot of people think it's a program, you know. Um, it's often been said, oh, you know, that restorative stuff of yours, that program just doesn't work. Um, you know, there's there's going to be a lot of naysayers, believe me, because people think it's a really soft option. But it isn't a soft option. You think about those questions, those kids would go, can't you just send me home, miss? I don't want to have to talk through all that because it's confronting. You know, they have to look inside themselves and they have to face the music and really here, some of these things that, that they're being blamed or that, that they've impacted is definitely not a soft option and it is definitely, definitely a consequence. But, you know, as I said, you're battling sometimes that embedded behaviourist approach, um, a lack of knowledge. So, you know, it's how do you um, school, how do you do the professional development for your whole staff? That I have found very challenging, um, you know, especially in a big staff. You know, I've tried to do it, but, you know, from a principal's perspective or a principal's position, it actually often sits in conflict with what many of the staff and many of the parents and actually the community expect of a principal. They expect the principal to be the hard-nosed, you know, punishment deliverer, not this, you know, um, the fluffy, caring, like, let's talk about this, let's find another way. So, you know, I, I did bring in expert um, people to try and, and grow that, but it's a, it's a journey. It's a journey and you can't give up on it. You really can't. Um, you know, some of the downfalls too can be the lack of preparation around these conversations, 
some people say, I've tried it at other schools and it just doesn't work. So it's about the fidelity of it, you know, because some people think that they're doing restorative justice, but they're not. It's just some sort of token thing. Um, and my best advice would be start small. It's all about the coalition of the willing, bringing people on board. But I have to say I haven't found the perfect answer for this part of it yet but I am not going to give up. <laughs> um, it's, it's well worth the challenge, I, I have to say. So that's it, Guy. <laughs> I'm done. I should really unmute before I start talking, right? <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I went ahead and removed your presentation. So it's just you and I oh. now. So you can feel free to close your PowerPoint. Um, and I want to let people know that are watching. Uh, if you would like to ask a question, uh, feel free to put a question in the chat. Uh, and we will uh, try to have Gail to get through a couple questions before we wrap up here. Uh, and of course, I'll start with a couple of questions and, and comments. Uh, well, actually, let me get the one that I saw already here. Uh, this was from Teresa. Uh, she said, uh, let's see, here it is. So restorative justice also develop lagging social and emotional skills that lead to disciplinary concerns. Uh, how is this not a win for all involved? So it sounds like Teresa is getting to that point of like kids actually are able to learn skills during this process. What's your experience with that? Oh, 100%. Um, because the more you do with this, uh, you know, either as the victim or as the perpetrator, they have this incredible knowing and understanding that conflict doesn't always have to be this yelling and screaming and shouting, and they actually learn the language. It's about the language. It's it's using those sorts of languages of what do you think, how do you feel. It's growing that emotional literacy as well. Um, so without a doubt, and the more they do these things, they know the whole spiel. And some and often you'll find kids just doing it naturally in the end. And staff, it's not just about the kids. It is growing that emotional literacy too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers that question. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, it seems to me that um, like some of the other things that, that we find that work that are, that are um, really evolve, really um, centered on relationships and problem solving. And, you know, it seems to me that, you know, you're, you're modeling also the skills of how to deal with conflict or how to deal with problems. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one of the things I've seen uh, from, talking to uh, teachers and children and, and parents is, is what's exciting to me is when you see a, a child that's learned a, a skill uh, like, you know, restorative uh, practices where they then want to take that home and apply it to their family, or, or they then want to take a different approach to how maybe they solve conflict. So you're absolutely helping to, um, you know, I would think teach skills that can carry over to a child's entire life. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, look, it's not for everybody, I have to say, too. Um, you know, and sometimes you've just got to work through this. Sometimes kids need a few goes at this. You know, it's not just something that a child's just going to be able to walk in to. You know, particularly children that, you know, maybe are... Um, Oh, you know, have a fear of talking or things like that. You know, it's really about adapting and, and evolving it from an individual basis. So whilst there's a generic set of questions, you, you know, you're absolutely free, obviously, to cut some out, add some in, you know, sometimes it just takes time. Yeah, and, and that actually really um, works well with this. This question came up, which is how much can we change the question to meet different cognitive levels of children? Uh, and, and I'm even thinking about, 
um, you know, for instance, uh, non-speaking children or how you might approach this um, in working with kind of a, a variety of neurodiverse children as well. Yeah, and look, totally. And, you know, as I said, it's not a one-size-fits-all. And, you know, I've even done, like, social stories for, you know, um, you know, children with autism and, you know, yes, you've just, yeah, you've sometimes just got to simplify things um, and do a very abridged version. But I think, again, I go back to the point, it's a way of being. So even if it's not necessarily the questions but just the approach that you use, mm-hmm. that curious questioning approach with your whole goal of repairing the relationships you know it's it's probably even more so about that than the actual questions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and and you're right about that i mean you know i think listening is probably one of the biggest things that gets missed uh often from the child's perspective you know uh they may be asked questions in a typical discipline scenario but they're not really looking for what the child has to say or what happened to the child or uh, so the the right questions are certainly important. Uh, another question kind of in that vein as well from Kristen uh, said that uh, her son would become selectively mute when asked to reflect on what happened. Uh, mm-hmm. Fortunately, staff found other ways to help him convey the story. Um, and, and Kristen, please feel free to share with us what some of those other ways might have been. Uh, her question for you was, uh, what are some of the ways uh, you assist people who can't put experiences into words? Mm. Drawing is amazing. So often it's like, you know, just just sit and draw me a picture of what happened. Or sometimes it's even just show me, um, you know, acting out, you know, using, um, you know, body language um, of those types of things. Sometimes it can even be, um, you know, often I've sent them home and their parents um, can actually then get the story more so than, than say, in a school setting um, and maybe they can record it uh, for the child. So it doesn't happen, have to happen then and then. Or maybe, you know, it's with the guidance officer. Maybe it's somebody else that they have a relationship with more so than me. Um, it's finding somebody that they're comfortable with. But I definitely understand where you're coming from, Kristen, it does approach that. Again, it's just finding the right time. But, you know, if I have a good enough, if I've done my job and I have great relationships with the kids and I definitely try to have the best relationships with all the kids in my, in the school, they do they often do feel comfortable chatting because they know straight away, again, it's my way of being. It's not that threatening, standover type of approach, but more of a supportive, caring, nurturing type of approach. So, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's those. But, mm-hmm. yeah, Kristen. Well, I, it looks like uh, Kristen uh, added a couple things to that and said, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, his speech pathologist would start with a stick person showing how she saw him earlier in the day. Uh, then uh, one, uh, how he looked now and asking what happened in between. Mm-hmm. Um, he would draw it out um, in the process. It sounds like they were really doing a great job. Uh, she would continue with her curi- curious questions. Yeah. And I think that's it to clarify the images created. And, and again, I think, you know, a, a lot of this, uh, no, no worries on the autocorrect. I think a lot of this goes back to that three R's relationship, relationship, relationship. Um, a child who may not, a child who is used to having things done to them, used to being suspended, expelled, uh, you know, sent home in school suspension, uh, used to restraint, seclusion, whatever it may be. Um, there's a gap to bridge there before that child may be ready to trust that may not have had the experience of people really valuing the things that they've said. So, you know, I, I would imagine that one of the key messages is here is to 
persevere and continue to make those relationships because the child that may be reluctant, um, you know, in the beginning of the school year, uh, you know, a, a few months in may have a, a better relationship. Um, and, and certainly if there is somebody that does have that better relationship, that's great. But um, wouldn't you say a lot of it's really about perseverance and continuing to, to forge a relationship? Oh, look, 100%. You know, that last scenario that I talked about, I condensed it down into one minute, but that was three years of hard work. I mean, you know, that that child did not trust me at the beginning either, and I still had rocks pelted at me from the roof, but it was being consistent every single time. As much as sometimes I wanted to get up on the roof and strangle him, it was about being, okay, I understand. When you're ready, that's okay. When you're ready to have a chat, let's have a chat. You know, is that consistency? And, yeah, look, without a doubt it was the relationship, but it's not easy work. You know, mm -hmm. there's no magic bullet, but it is about, again, it's what do you value? What do you value in a, in a little person? What do you value? And if it's worth valuing, then it's worth sticking at mm -hmm. and not falling into your old habits of... Mm -hmm. Because, you know, that's the quickest and easiest way, isn't it? You know, sending a kid home is it quick and easy. It's right. from a principal's perspective, um, quick and easy. Um, and, you know, the, I'd often say that to the staff, look, I could just send them home. It makes less work for me, but it's not the right work. Yeah, and, um, and it's not solving any problem. <laughs> um, I mean, what, what what does being out of school do for that child? What might that child's life be like out of school? Um what pressures might that put on he uh, or her and their family? Uh, I mean, th there's a lot of things that that's not solving. Uh, and of course, that's the, the point here is with restorative approaches is to let's understand why things happen, how people felt and help them to solve the problems that are affecting their lives. Hmm. And you've got uh, the, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, yeah. I mean, it is the pressure on the family. And as I said to you, you know, I take my hat off, hat off to every single family with a child, every single one of them, because they're all doing their best. But, you know, sometimes, oh, my goodness, I felt so sorry for some of the families because they felt so bad. They took the blame on. Right, right. Know, oh, my child's been suspended all the time. I'm a bad parent. There's something wrong. It impacts their work as well. They get more right. stressed. Right. Um, you know, it, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and we often live in a world where, uh, the focus is first to blame the child. And, and when people are done blaming the child and, and expecting that the child be responsible for fixing the challenges, uh, they then move to the parent. And, and many parents mm -hmm. who are out there, wonderful parents, doing the best they can, working really hard, supporting their children, uh, you know, all of these things are, are put to blame. And, and there's a lot of blame and shame that happens there, um, which is is really upsetting because... You know, I know personally so many families that, that are really doing amazing things to support their kids, but are chronically blamed for, um, and again, this isn't about blame. This is about how do we help? How do we help people? Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about one of the challenges here, and, and you kind of touched on this a bit, is that we do come from a mindset of, of discipline and consequence. And a lot of us were raised in that kind of model um, and, and, you know, let's face it. I mean, you know, people have been raised and, uh, and, you know, we still have corporal punishment that happens in, in a lot of places, including here in the United States, uh, a lot of things that we should know aren't working that people continue to do. And, and one of the things that's interesting to me is if you look at the, 
the word discipline and you look at kind of where that word evolves from, uh, the, the roots of that word are really about instruction and knowledge. It's about teaching. Discipline is not about consequence, but somehow discipline has, has gotten the uh, gotten gotten conflated with, uh, you know, consequence and, and negative activity and punishment uh, and discipline should really be about teaching, right? About providing, um, you know, providing skills and, and helping kids. But, you know, I'm sure as a principal, and, and I know from talking to you before that, um, and, and know from teachers and, and schools that I've worked with, that there's often this backlash of, Oh, this, you know, why am I, I'm sending them to the office. So you will suspend them or expel them. And if you don't do those things, you're not doing what we should be doing. We should be doing these things. How do we, how do we change those mindsets and, and, and get people to look at discipline as, uh, you know, teaching kids and helping them develop the, the skills to be successful humans. And look, I think that, you know, I don't know if that was a rhetorical question or a question, but, you know, for me it's just one teacher at a time, mm. I think. You know, it's, again, you know, not giving up. It's being relational in my own conversations with teachers, I guess, and it's it's modelling. But, you know, and, look, you know, it's, it's as I said, starting with the coalition of the willing. Um, but, you know, you hit the nail on the head and, you know, I, I was always in conflict, I guess, with my role and my values in that and us you know that traditional role of we've sent this child to you you have to punish them otherwise you haven't done your job properly right, and you're leaving right. us all and you're not supporting you're not being supportive and you know my reflection on that was um you know i understand where they're coming from i don't support what they're saying but i do understand so it's finding that balance and again it's about education and it's about knowledge and it's about mm -hmm. time and it's about them seeing the fruits mm -hmm. of, of, of what this can bring Sure. Yeah. Our, our friend, Jamie Emerson, who's over in the UK. So truly a uh, international audience here today, uh, really enjoyed the session and, and was really inspired by what you've been talking about and, and resonating with uh, uh, their own experiences there. My, the question here was about staff resistance and um, you know, that people have different ideas of, of behavioral and different tolerances and, and kind of, again, getting back to, you know, what, what you've done, to help people to be open to the approach. Um, and, and maybe that's thinking about some of the success stories that you've had. You know, I, I would think that with some of these situations that you would begin to get believers as they would mm -hmm. see, you know, the, the kids that have been labeled to be the disciplined kids, the bad kids, mm -hmm. um, beginning to make progress. Has that been your experience? Or have you found other ways to help people to make that turn? I mean, it, it's a challenge when you say that because, I mean, some people you just, it's hard because it is that hearts and minds work. So the bigger question is how do you change people's hearts and minds? And, you know, I have to admit I don't have the 100% answer to that, but I think it's about it's about growing the knowledge and it is about presenting this stuff, but being open-minded, being open to the discussion. You know, it's about that um, social constructionism. You know, it's about them having the opportunity to talk to me about their concerns around this approach as well. So I guess it's about being open um, and just, you know, involving them in the in the conversations as often as you can. Now, mm -hmm. sometimes that's not po positive because, you know, some staff don't like it that the kids can have a voice and say how the teachers made them feel and what their part in it was. 
um, but involving them in the actual process and, you know, talking about the successes and, you know, bringing to staff meetings some of these types of things, even videoing them and, and sharing them, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's about staying the course mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and challenging and being brave enough to challenge some of that stuff. Absolutely. goes on. So a couple of things I want to mention. Uh, you mentioned Mona Della Hook, and, and we have uh, Mona's been on the program twice now uh, for different presentations. Uh, I will mention to those that may not be familiar with Mona's work, uh, Beyond Behaviors is a fantastic book, uh, and, and it really goes into a number of things you were talking about. Uh, Mona, of course, talks a lot about the polyvagal theory and about kind of bottom up and, and top down behaviors, and um, you know, kind of the challenges with the behaviorism approaches of always thinking everything is a matter of choice. So I think works in well with with a lot of this work. Uh, you also mentioned um, the book from Bruce Perry and Oprah. Um, um, the title of the book is um, What Happened to You? Uh, I was losing it there, uh, which I think we both talked about that we're, we're both uh, have been reading. Uh, and uh, I'm going to share a little bit of news here, but uh, maybe just unofficially, uh, we're talking about doing a book study uh, in the Alliance, and you were going to host that uh, related to uh, the book, uh, What Happened to You? Uh, so look for details on that in the coming month or so. Uh, we'll be setting some dates up. So if people are interested in participating in that book study, it will be uh, led by Gail. So we're really excited about that. Um, so at this point, um, you know, we're, we're, we're just about out of time here, uh, but I want to uh, give you an opportunity if there's any kind of final words or uh, wisdom or advice you'd like to offer our listeners as we wrap things up. Um, firstly, thank you for indulging me in my passion. <laughs> um, look, I think, I think, you know, I can't stress again, you know, it's about that true understanding that you cannot control somebody to do something that they don't want to do. Let go of your power. That's the first step because until you can do that, you you won't believe in any of this stuff because you'll hang on to that. I must make them. And I think it's being brave and I think it's being courageous and it's getting in that bull ring. You know, Brene Brown has this amazing quote, won't say it word for word, but it's about, you know, are you brave enough to be in the ring? not just being outside the ring, but being in the ring because leaving this stuff is sometimes quite challenging and confronting, but, you know, believe in it um, and, you know, our kids deserve it, you know, because every child deserves a champion and this is just one way that you can be a child's voice, a child's champion to grow understanding for our whole entire community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm more than happy for people to email me as well, Guy, you know, um, oh, that's fantastic. Like, um, and, and I know we had a question about the slides. And uh, I, I did remind people that the entire presentation uh, will be available on YouTube and Facebook and as an audio podcast. Uh, but if somebody was interested in your slides, can that be ma- made available? Or, okay, so they can, yeah, if they email, email me. me and yeah, I okay. Email okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Sounds great. Sounds great. So again, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on and, and sharing your, your experience and your knowledge. Um, you know, whether we're, we're talking one-on-one or we're doing something like this, I always find your work really inspiring uh, and really appreciate, you know, all that you've done in your career. And we, we're getting some nice comments here, um, you know, about your presentation. So thank you so much. And uh, I will talk to you again very soon. And we'll be, we'll be looking. And we already got somebody excited about the book study, by the way. Um, <laughs> so um, look looking forward to that. But thank you so much, Gail. And I will let you go. Uh, we have a couple of quick announcements here. But, you know, thank again, you. thank you so much. And, and we'll see you again next time. And thank you for the privilege. Thank you.
All right. So thank you so much for joining us today. I did have a quick announcement uh, regarding next time. Uh, and uh, Chris, and I see you're excited about the book study. I am too. Uh, we'll have details on that on the Alliance. Uh, probably on the Facebook page is the best place to find that information. Uh, so feel free to reach out or just follow us there. Uh, do want to mention we've got another presentation coming up again uh, in two weeks. So we do these every two weeks. Uh, two weeks from now, we're going to be talking to Julie Roberts. Uh, Julie Roberts is the founder of the Therapist Neurodiversity Collective, uh, a group of therapists that are are really um, supportive not only of, of neurodiversity, but very respectful and, and working with uh, people in ways that are, are very supportive. And they've got a great group of, uh, you know, OTs and speech pathologists and others that are part of this collective. Uh, and, and Julie's going to talk to us about shifting therapies towards empathetic and respectful neurodiversity paradigm. Uh, that should be really exciting as well. So be sure to join us again uh, in two weeks. So thank you all for joining us today. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Uh, feel free to stay in touch with us on our Facebook. Uh, we're also on Twitter and Instagram and, and elsewhere. Uh, and as always, if there's anything we can do to help, please feel free to reach out. Thank you and have a good afternoon or morning in the case of Australia. I think it's uh, now almost seven o'clock in the morning. So I thank Gail for uh, being willing to participate so early. Thanks so much.